0: So, we're in part two today of a message series I'm doing called Misunderstood Messages. And what we're looking at is we're going to be looking at some verses from the Bible, the verses which tend to be quite well known, but the meaning of those verses tends to not be well known. And so these are... These are not obscure Bible verses. These are Bible verses that you will be familiar with, that you will have heard being quoted. But very often, the actual message that these verses contain is misunderstood. And so today, last week, we looked at misunderstood messages about life. Next week, we're gonna look at misunderstood messages about the family. Today, we're looking at misunderstood messages about the devil i think or satan what did i call it about the devil misunderstood messages about the devil now we're we're going to look at if we have time we're going to look at three main passages today and uh, that contain verses that speak about the devil and yet we misunderstand very often what these verses are saying so I want to give you a little bit of background, first of all. I'm not going to be talking about verses from the Bible that mention the devil that everybody understands. I'm only talking about ones that people misunderstand, okay? So just to set a little bit of, of context, first of all, the there is a word that is used in the Bible, Satan. It uh, comes from both Hebrew and Aramaic, HaShatan or Satana in either of those languages, and when we, because that word comes from a different a different language, and we rather than translate the word, we have just taken the word right over. We can misunderstand certain passages in the Bible where that word is mentioned. For instance, the word is not actually a name, it has a meaning. If If we had translated that word, let me give you another example, the word baptism. The word baptism, we think that is a religious word. Because the only time we ever hear the word baptism is when somebody is being baptized in a church. But actually, it's not even an English word. It's a Greek word, baptizo. And rather than translate the word into English, the word was just taken lock, stock, and barrel right over from Greek into English. In Greek, it didn't have any religious meaning at all. It actually, if we were to translate it, it simply means to dunk. That's all it means. In Greece, it would be baptizo. Baptismo's donuts, not Duncan's donuts, right? <laughs> so that is all it means, is it, it means to dunk. So in the Greek language, you baptize your dishes when you wash them, you baptize clothes when you dye them, you baptize people when you baptize them. But the same word is used, but we think it only has one meaning because instead of translating it as dunk or immerse we took the whole word over from another language and put it into English. And now we're not really sure what it means. Well, we did the same with the Hebrew and Aramaic terms, satana or hoshatan. And we took those words, and rather than translate them, we just brought them right over. Now, all the, all the word actually means is an adversary, an enemy, an opponent, a trickster. Something along those lines. A con artist, it could even mean. Something along those kind of lines. And sometimes, so once you know that, and then you go to the Bible and you look at the Bible to find out what it says about this word Satan, you will find out that the Bible actually doesn't use the word very much at all. In fact, the Bible uses the word an awful lot less than the majority of modern-day Christians use it, right? That's the first thing. The second thing you will notice is that in a whole lot of the times that the word is used, it actually doesn't mean the devil. You've taken the devil away. Lead pastor, it says now. It doesn't mean the lead pastor. It said devil there before. There it Uh Um... And a lot of the times, it doesn't mean the devil. It's talking about people. In fact, there's even one occasion it's talking about God. It says God, uh, you know, God shall be an adversary to that person. And the word is a Satan, right? It's also used about people. It can be, it's used about the angel of the Lord in one place. And so in a lot of the cases, it is not a name. It's a descriptive term. And then the times that it's actually a name for the devil is there are only a handful of occasions in the entire Bible that it's used that way. But because we don't understand the word, we think that it always means that. Okay, It would be kind of like this. It would be like you overhearing a con. You're sitting in Starbucks having a coffee and there's people at the next table having a conversation and you overhear their conversation and one says to the other, oh, I cannot stand that place that I work. See my boss, he's nothing but a little Hitler. If you suddenly imagine that Adolf Hitler himself has been hiding in Brazil all these years and is now 124 or whatever age he would be and has literally become this person's boss, you are totally misunderstanding a figure of speech. But you know what they mean by that. He's a little dictator. He's a, in fact, sometimes people might even use the word devil. Oh, that, he, that guy's just a little infuriating devil he is. But you don't actually mean that person is a devil. It's a figure of speech that's being used, or it's not literally Hitler, or whatever it may be. We use these figures of speech. And in the Hebrew and Aramaic and even Greek cultures, they would sometimes use that word to talk about the devil, but very often they would use it to talk about a figure of speech. And if we don't understand that, we can miss understand certain verses in the Bible. Here is one verse that can be misunderstood. Um, um, The first misunderstood message is that Peter, the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, was literally possessed by the devil himself. Now, if you believe that, this could possibly cause a little bit of spiritual anxiety in your life. If one of Jesus' 12 disciples can be walking down the road with Jesus, and before you know it, he's possessed by the devil, then what hope have you got? None. I mean, at least he had a good influence around him. Jesus, you're sitting in front of Game of Thrones. I mean, you are possessed already. Right? Now, why is it that people think this? It's because of something Jesus said. So let's look at it. Let's look at the verse, and from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now, how does Peter respond to this? Let's read on. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him saying, for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are an obstacle in my way. Now let's just pause there. So people say, oh my goodness. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. That must mean that Satan, you know, the guy with the red tights and all that. He must have jumped into Peter's body and was operating. My goodness, if one of the 12 apostles can get possessed that easily. I'm a bit nervous now. However. In that culture, when you were speaking to a person, to a human being, and you called them a Satan, you, they did not mean that the, the devil himself. And in fact, it's very clear here. Get behind me, Satan. You're an, ob, you're an obstacle in my way. Why? Because you're seeing things from the devil's point of view. Is that what it says? It says, for you are seeing things... Merely from a what? Human Human point of view. Not from God's. You are thinking the thoughts of the devil himself. Is that what it says? You are thinking the thoughts of? And not the thoughts of God. So in that culture, to call a person a Satan was meaning men. In fact, It didn't even always mean an evil thing. Sometimes in Aramaic-speaking cultures, they use the word of an ingenious person, like an inventor. Because he's used his mind to come up with schemes. It could be good schemes, but usually it means evil schemes. But he's used his mind and his thought process to excuse doing something wrong or to justify a sin or to make it look attractive to go down the wrong path in life instead of the right path in life. Such a person was called a Satan. A person who is thinking Not who's demon-possessed, not who the devil is speaking into their mind, but they are thinking merely human thoughts from lower-level human thinking instead of elevating their thoughts to higher-level divine ways of thinking. You know, the Bible talks about this in the book of Isaiah. It says this, Put up the next verse, please. Isaiah 55. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. Declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see how the Bible is talking here about two different levels of thinking. In fact, a lot of the verses that people use to talk about spiritual warfare in the Bible, when you read them in context, the real battle, the main battle, the biggest battle that you will ever face in life is the battle in your own mind, and when you have to deal with your own thoughts, your negative thinking, your temptations that come to the mind, the, the anger that arises in the mind, the self-pity, whatever it is, anything that is pulling you down to low-level living, rather than a freedom and faith in God and thinking his thoughts, that is becoming an obstacle to you, an adversary to you, an enemy, a Satan. Now, I'm not a, an Aramaic scholar, but I want to quote one. If we put this next quote up, please. This is from Dr. Rocco Erico, who is uh, one of the main teachers of uh, Biblical Aramaic in, in North America today. And he says this, Satana, Satan, derives from the Aramaic root, root sata. And it means to slip, to slide, to deceive, to lead astray. In Aramaic, calling an individual a Satan means the person is going astray or is leading others astray. Satan here refers to Peter's misguided intention. Peter attempted to redirect Jesus' course. He didn't want his master to talk about the cross and dying. Peter's admonition was misleading to Jesus and would deter him from his destiny. Jesus was using a very common figure of speech. Peter didn't suddenly have a panic attack thinking that he was possessed by the devil himself. He, he would have heard those kind of things of, you know, from being a little kid. When he misbehaved, his mother would be shouting, You little Satan, you get in here right now. And it wouldn't have meant anything. And so he was used to hearing things like that, and that is exactly what Jesus meant. You know, a a similar term is used when Jesus sent the disciples out to go into the villages ahead of him to preach, and when they came back and said, Lord, people are being healed and even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When they were out there doing their ministry. What he was saying was this. In your ministry. In the fruitfulness that you bore there. I saw evil and error fall in those areas. You have done a good job. He he didn't mean that all of a sudden. Over that village over there. The devil suddenly fell off the balcony of heaven and landed. That was obviously a figure of speech in that tense. And so here we are. Let's put up the true message. Now, of Matthew 16, to call a person a Satan in the ancient world meant that that person was thinking low-level human thoughts that were leading them or others down the wrong path rather than higher, wiser, divine thoughts that lead to the right path. So that's a fi- there's one of these verses that we misunderstand, but once we know the ancient figure of speech, we see it ourselves. But along the same lines as that, oh my goodness, could, is it that easy to get possessed by the devil? Along the same lines as that, there's another misunderstood message that some Christians have. And that is that, that spiritual leaders, mainly apostles, can literally, if you misbehave, hand you over to Satan. And this comes from a verse, let's put the verse up, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul is talking about somebody that was a member of the church in Corinth. And he says this, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans do not do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. And you are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame. And then he goes on and says, "Um, you should remove this man from your fellowship. Now take note of that. I've underlined it and put it in bold because I want you to take note of that. You should remove this man from your fellowship, even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. And then you must, here's the other words, deliver him to Satan For the destruction of the flesh, that he himself will be saved on the day the Lord Jesus returns. There's that phrase, delivered to Satan. Again, we don't live in that culture. And so we never use that phrase. And so that can sound a little bit scary. In fact, I have even heard of cults where cult leaders have used this verse. There's another verse, we'll look at it next week, that cults use, that you must hate your father and mother if you want to be Jesus' father. We'll look at that next week. But this is one that they sometimes use. They say, you can't leave our group because our leader is the the apostle or the prophet or the, the messenger or the Messiah or whoever he claims to be. And if you leave our group, he will hand you over to Satan and then Satan will destroy your life. And they get it from this phrase I have even met not cult members but Christians who have read this and been part of little legalistic churches that they're actually scared that if they leave the church that that is that the devil will get a hold of them God is not a God of fear people We sang it in our song earlier on. Jesus makes the darkness tremble and Jesus silences fear. Any message that somebody takes out the Bible and gives to you that is a fear-inducing, anxiety-inducing message, have another look at it. Because the Bible says there is no fear in love, but God's perfect love casts out fear. If I was ever part of a group or a church or a commune or whatever and they told me that if I, I should be scared to leave them because if I left them the devil would get a hold of me. I would pack my bags and run away from that group as fast as I possibly could because where the spirit of the Lord is there is Liberty. Anyone who tries to control and manipulate your life with religious fear is not bringing the life-giving words of Jesus Christ to you. I hope you realize that. Now, this thing, deliver him to Satan, was a common figure of speech in that day. And it actually means we've got a very similar figure of speech today. It means Let them stew in their own juices. Let them do whatever they want. And that's why he says, put them. The guy doesn't want to live like a Christian. He wants to bring your church into disrepute. That's fine. Let him do it outside your church. Let him live any way he wants. Um, Could you jump the next slide and go to the Rocco Erico quote for me, will you? Here we are again, Dr. Rocco Erico. delivered to Satan. The Semitic term, delivered to Satan, means turn them over to their own devices or let them stew in their own juices. Another saying in English that conveys the same meaning is give them enough rope and they'll hang themselves. What the phrase to deliver someone to Satan actually means is wash your hands of them. If they want to live that way and you've tried to talk them out of it and they won't listen, wash your hands of them, let them do their own thing. All they're going to do is they're going to hurt themselves and hopefully they will come to their senses. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son? Do you remember when the prodigal son was, the father let him do his own thing? The father let him leave the family home. The father wasn't a cult leader or a controlling pastor saying, if you leave the farm, the devil will get you. He never did that. He let the prodigal son do his own thing. And he ended up in a pig pen, starving and broke. And you know what the Bible says? There's a great verse where Jesus says, but then he came to his senses. He came to his senses in that bad situation. Some people have to go really, really, really low before they come to their senses. And he came to his senses, and when he did, he returned to the Father's house again. Let me show you a verse in the book of Proverbs. It talks about a very similar thing. Those kinds of people. It says, For they hated knowledge, and they chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice, and paid no attention when I corrected them. So this is, su- they, you've tried to help them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way. Choking on their own schemes. For simpletons turn away from me. This is Turns away from wisdom and from God's wisdom. To death, fools are destroyed by their own complacency. But all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by fear of harm. Christians are not supposed to live in fear. We are supposed to live untroubled by fear of harm. And so this is talking about someone that You've let them stew in their own juice. You've let them go their own way. And so Paul is saying in First Corinthians, this guy's living with his stepmother. I mean, it's a complete disaster area. You can't have him in the church any longer. You know, if you've given him the choice, change your life or change your church, you know? So put him out of the church. So they put him out. But a few months later, Paul had to write another letter to them. After 1 Corinthians, it's called, not surprisingly, 2 Corinthians. And so in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this guy again. I am not overstating it when I say that the man who caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him. And that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Remember Paul says, deliver him to Satan, let him stew in his own juices so that he will be saved, so that he will come to his senses, so that he'll come back to the church. He says, now it's time to forgive and comfort him, otherwise he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote to you as I did to test you, to see if you would fully comply with my instructions. When you forgive this man, I forgive him too. And when I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit. So that Satan will not outsmart us for we are familiar with his schemes. This is talking about the devil here in this verse, and this is saying the devil just loves it when Christians fuss and fight. You know, you've let that guy stew in his own juice, but he's come to his senses and he's put his life right. Don't let let the devil get division in, get unity back together once again. Let's look at the real message of this verse, 1 Corinthians 5. It's also mentioned in 1 Timothy 1, this delivered to Satan. When people cause destruction to the church through their influence or teaching and they refuse to stop, put them out of the church. I've said teaching because the First Timothy verse is about people who are bringing false teaching. The same verse is used. Hopefully, sorry, put them out of the church and let them live and believe however they want. Hopefully, when they experience the consequences... They will see for themselves that they are are going down the wrong path and they will come to their senses. And the, the prime example we have is in 1 Corinthians, he's put out of the church and left to stew in his own juices until he comes to senses. And in 2 Corinthians, he's forgiven and brought back into the church again. So those first two verses that we looked at get behind me, Satan, deliver him to Satan, are two occasions in the Bible where the word Satan is used as a figure of speech, just as an everyday figure of speech. Doesn't mean the devil at all. This last passage of Scripture I want to look at is one which does talk about evil powers out there. But very often what people do is they read this passage, misunderstand it, and actually do the opposite of what it's advising you to do. Here's the misunderstood message. We need to strive in prayer to fight against demons and evil. Now, I, I remember, I can remember about, oh my goodness, about 20 years ago or something like that. It was in, I remember in the 90s, there was a great craze that went round the Christian church all over the world, a great spiritual warfare craze. And everybody was writing books about demons. And the, the popular thing was territorial spirits. And what they were saying is, is there an area of your city where there's a lot of drug addicts or a lot of prostitution or a lot of organized crime or a lot of this or a lot of that? Well, the reason for that must be because there's a big territorial spirit, a big evil spirit that rules over that area. And you're never going to get these people to become Christians until you first deal with this big spirit. And you had to identify what it was, and then you had to have all these prayer meetings against them. And I even heard of Kate. I went to a seminar once where this guy was advising that you find... I don't know how you do this in Alberta. Certainly not Saskatchewan. But you're supposed to find the nearest hill and climb up it so that you can get as high above where the demon is as possible. I even heard of one group of pastors that rented a private jet to fly around their so they could pray about against the demons that were in the air. It's like this is not Harry Potter, people with dementors out there and whatnot. People, Jesus Christ has already won the victory and risen from the dead, in case you don't know it. Now, that doesn't mean there's not evil out there. There's human evil and there's spiritual evil out there. But the fact of the matter is, I am in a bubble of God's love, forgiveness, grace, and protection. And I am living for God and Christ is in me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? And no weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every mouth that speaks against me shall be silenced. And a curse without a cause shall not land. I could quote Bible verse after Bible verse about how we are safe in the Father's hands. So we need to and have all this striving and prayer. Well, I mean, Jesus taught it. The disciples came to Jesus and said, how should we pray? And Jesus said this way, Oh, Satan, I punch you in the neck. No, Jesus never said that. Jesus said like this, Beloved Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May your will be, deliver me from all evil. That was as much many words as the evil God. Let's look at the verse that people use. Ephesians 6 Stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. And this is talking about the devil. For we are not wrestling against flesh and blood enemies. What it's saying is stop fussing and fighting with people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the spiritual realm. Now, this is the verse that people often use, and we just take that two verses there and forget the actual context of it. But even this verse itself, taken out of context, has an interesting word. Stand. Stand firm. Stand firm. So, here I am. I'm I'm praying for my city. Right. What have I to do when I'm praying for my city? Have I to get all agitated that this area of town here, where there's a lot of crime and drugs and things like that, that I have to go there and, and wrestle and fight and rebuke and engage the enemy. No, I have to stand firm. Let's read the whole passage in context. Let's go on. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The focus is on God, first of all, okay? Then he says, put on all of God's armor That you will be able to, what? There's that word again. Stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not wrestling against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in the spiritual realms. Let's read on. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to stand in the time of evil. Sometimes evil times come. Literally, it actually says the day of evil. Sometimes you wake up and it's a good day, and sometimes you wake up and bad news comes. It's like an onslaught against you. What happens when you're having a bad day? What happens when it's a day of evil? You have to stand. How have you to stand? With every piece of God's armor. Then, after the battle, you will still be... And then what's the next? You'll be standing firm. What's the next word? Do you notice how many times it says this? Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness for shoes, put on peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil... Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Right here, Paul is using two, he actually is mixing two metaphors from the Roman world. One to do with armor and one to do with wrestling, right? So first of all, wrestling. He says that that you've... We are not wrestling against flesh and blood people, but against these evil spirits. Now, wrestling in those days, you know, like people didn't dress up in silly costumes and come out and shout, I am the Undertaker or whatever. It wasn't like that, right? Um, the, and they also didn't hit each other with chairs or whatever else. The purpose of wrestling was like this it was done in a circle, there was a circle. And you were to stand in your circle. And secondly, you were absolutely start naked. That's the next thing. In fact, most sports in the ancient, all the Olympics were done in the nude. But And so that you were start naked. And then the third thing was, you were covered with olive oil so that you were slippy, right? And you were to stand your ground and your opponent was to come in And the point of wrestling was he was to try to move you out of the circle, right? He was to stop you from standing your ground. He was to move you out of the circle. A wrestling match was not you running at somebody and fighting them. A wrestling match was you standing your ground, And somebody trying to move you off your ground, but you not being moved. In fact, you know, it's kind of like the first psalm where it talks about the righteous. And it says, they are like oak oak trees planted by the Lord. They will never be moved. That's what it means. Now, Paul is saying, first of all, it's like you're in a wrestling match. And the enemy is trying to move you off your ground. But he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, in the power of his spirit. Make sure your focus is not on the enemy. Have your focus on the Lord. Get so filled up with the Lord. Get so anointed with the Holy Spirit. Be such a slippery character that the enemy can't even get a hold on you. You're so covered in the oil of God's presence. And then he says, then he mixes a metaphor, and he goes from, from wrestling to, to the, the army, the Roman legions. And he says, but you're not naked. You're clothed. Clothed with what? The armor of God. And then he describes it like Roman armor, the way the, way the Romans wore armor. And what he saying, and you, you, of course I hope you realize that the armor of God is not invisible armor. I met a woman once that told me that she kept all the armor under her bed. And I said, well, how do you do that? And she said, well, when I go to bed at night, I take it off. Like it was make-believe armor that she would, and she would put it down under. And when she would get up in the morning, she would put it back on. And I said, where does it tell you to take it off when you go to bed at night? (laughs) And it's not a make-believe armor anyway. These are also figures of speech. He's saying, the way a Roman soldier has a breastplate to guard his heart, God has made you righteous and cleansed all your sins. So if the devil comes and tries to put guilt on you, say, no, I'm not falling for that one. I'm standing my ground. I'm righteous because I'm forgiven. It says there, Put on a belt of truth round your waist. When a thought comes to you, when the powers of evil try to tempt you to tell a lie or do something deceptive, say, stand your ground. Nope, I'm not falling for that one. I'm living in truth. The helmet of salvation, make sure your mind is completely renewed with all of the promises and positive things thoughts that God has for you and don't allow negative things. In other words, he's saying, you're clothed with Jesus Christ. You're clothed with Christ. You're anointed with the slippery oil of the Holy Spirit, and then you're clothed with Christ. And you know what the enemy will try to do? Do you know what the devil will try to do? He can't possess you. He, he can't force you. He can't drag you off the mat. He's just, he's going to try and lure you and tempt you To give up your ground. Somebody comes and says to you, I want you to sign such and such a thing. And it compromises your Christian values. And you say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. And then they try to put fear into you. Yeah, you might be brought before the employment tribe. You know if you don't sign that. Bring me before anything you want. I'm standing my ground here. I am not going to sign something on, right? And you see, the temptation is to do something, and then the fear comes to move you off of your mat. Stay in the circle, church. Stay in the circle of God. That's all it's saying. It's not saying run about looking for demons to fight. It's saying stand your ground and keep standing. Keep focused on the Lord and get filled up with His Spirit. And always remember that you are in Christ. You are clothed with Christ. Your heart belongs to Him. Your mind belongs to Him. Your body belongs to Him. You are His. And the enemy cannot touch you in any way whatsoever. And so, the the true message, let's look at the true message of this. People are not your enemies. So don't fight and fuss with them. In fact, this passage is written right after Paul is talking about relationships. He talks about husbands and wives and how to live in unity and not get not fight with one another. He talks about parents and children and how to live in unity and not fight with one another. He talks about employers and employees and how to live in unity and not fight with one another. And right after saying all that, he says, because it's not flesh and blood people we're fighting against. You are being tempted and pulled in different directions. You know, there's another verse that says that your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may may devour. A roaring lion. Do you know, recently I was talking to a couple from South Africa and they were telling me about the way lions hunt. And they were saying male lions can hunt and they sometimes do hunt, especially when they're on their own. But that's not the normal thing and that's not what a roaring lion means. They said this is how they hunt. They'll see some animals and the male lion will come up and will roar at them. He's not going to attack them, but he roars as if he is. And that roar is enough to put fear in the animals So the animals run and they run right into an ambush where the female lions are waiting for them. And so the roaring lion, the devil's like a roaring lion. That means he's trying to scare you so that you will run out of the circle of God's protection. Don't allow, don't be scared of the devil. Don't be scared of evil don't be scared of being deceived. Don't be scared of anything because God loves you and His love will cast out all fear. And the Bible says if you've got any fear present in your life, it is a sign that you have not come to a full realization of just how much God loves you. For Fear has to do with punishment, but God's love for you will never punish. It forgives and it fills and it removes the fear. So the real message is people are not your enemies, so don't fuss and fight with them. And don't be distracted by a roaring lion by trying to fight the devil. Because when you fight the devil, you ignite the devil. Whatever you focus on in life becomes bigger. Do you notice when we were singing worship songs earlier, we didn't sing, Jesus, Jesus, the darkness makes me tremble. Did you notice we didn't sing that? We sang, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Our songs, our worship and our prayers and our encouragement and our teaching should always be lifting up how great God is and minimizing how small the enemy is. Because God, as we focus on God, as we open our mind and our hearts to the higher thoughts of God and are filled more and more with that than the enemy or fear or doubt or anxiety or or whatever it may be, has less and less place. It says when you fight with people, your thoughts become things. When you say that person's this, that person's that, you actually create the situation. So fill your mind, the helmet of salvation, and your life, every part of you, with Christ, with his presence, and with the truth of scripture, and don't let anyone or anything sidetrack you or knock you over, keep standing in faith. Everybody shout, keep the faith. Shout it again. That's all these verses are saying. Keep your relationship with God good. Think higher level thoughts. Keep in faith and stay in the blessing zone and you have nothing to fear or worry about. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, Lord. Let's stand together. Come on, church. I'm going to lead us in a prayer together. I want you to wake up your little spirit that's lying in there right now take a big deep breath in. Let's lift our hands up to heaven and let's say this. I am a new creation in Christ. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. But whatever I do shall prosper and bear fruit. For I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me. I am safe in God's hands. No evil shall befall me. I believe it. I receive it. Right here and right now. In Jesus' name, amen.